Good afternoon, patriots. You are listening to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today we'll talk Democrat infighting, China's defiance of the World Trade Organization, and Kyle Rittenhouse. Next, on Living with Liberty. With our country's garbage media being what it is, it's often highlighted more often than not about how much infighting there is amongst conservatives and the Republican Party. Every time there's a little dust up, it seems that that makes for a big story with these uh, legacy media outlets. What doesn't get as much airtime on legacy media or video or print is the infighting within the communist, I mean, Democrat party. This bloated spending bill that the Biden administration has been trying to push through is the latest example. And because of the staunch opposition of Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin, they hand a bunch of money to everyone at the expense of the middle-class taxpayer plan, also known as the Build Back Better plan, has been cut in half to $1.75 trillion from the 3.5 that it had been previously. Now, this cutback in uh, the spending has sparked outrage from the fringe left of the Democrat Party, who have neither a grasp on finances nor a grasp on reality when it comes to how money actually works. Now, the fringe is plain coy as to whether they are going to support the bill in this new form of being half of what was uh, originally uh, being put out there or not. So what has been pulled from this bill to get the price down and seems to have upset the Democrats on the fringe? Well, there are several Democratic aspirations in here, mainly again from your leftists like Bernie Sanders and AOC, and those things are paid family leave, prescription uh, drug costs, cutting policies, and the state and local tax deduction. Those have all been cut and are not part of this new draft of the bill. Now let's start and look at these things. Let's start with the, the paid family leave. Honestly, there are companies out there already doing paid family leave as a competitive differentiator when it comes to recruiting top talent. Now, I've been fortunate enough in my career that uh, just about every company I've worked for, actually, I'll take that back. I think everybody, every company I've worked for has offered uh, some sort of fam paid family leave. However, it's totally unnecessary for the government to get involved in this. We have companies offering it. Uh, yes, there's other companies that don't. There's reasons for that. It needs to be left up to the free market, to employers, to determine the value of offering something like a family leave as a benefit for their employees. What isn't being thought about with these policies is the impact that it would have on price. Now you think about, uh, you know, an Amazon or a company like that. They offer these things because it's a benefit to uh, drawing in top talent. 
their cost uh, structure is such that they can offer something like that. Now you go down to uh, um, a company that's heavily retail, and they might offer something like that to those that work in their corporate office, but it's not going to trickle all the way down to the floor. Why is that? Because the people working the floors uh, of the retail of, of the stores are generally part-time employees. And generally those uh, those uh, positions historically and traditionally have been positions filled by uh, teenagers and and uh, kids in college. They're, they were never meant to be uh, full-time careers, stocking shelves. It, it just, that wasn't a thought in, in how a store is operating. Uh, so why would that be extended all the way down to, uh, you know, someone working in retail when they're not full-time? And a lot of times there's their students or even, um, you know, maybe in the case of Walmart, right? They're maybe even... Uh, Elderly, you know, the door greeters, which they don't necessarily have too many uh, anymore. They kind of seem to come and go, but it, it's not people that would benefit from a, a family leave policy. All something like that. It's a it's a government regulation. All it would do is add additional costs. We're already battling inflation, and these, you know, they had this in there. That would just increase it. Now I want you to think about this for a moment here. A number of European nations offer uh, these these family leaves on the backs of their taxpayers. Now, how many of those European nations rank ahead of the United States in the world economic rankings? If you looked at the GDP, how many of those countries that offer this are ahead of the United States? If you said zero, you'd be correct. Why is that? Why, if this, and and don't get me wrong, I, I think paid family leave is, is great. Like I said, I worked for companies that offered it. I benefited from it. It's a great way to draw uh, young talent into your company. And I think companies should offer it, but it should be companies, not the government mandating it. It should be the free market that determines that there is a value here to have something like this. As a company, we're going to offer it. Now you think about, why there aren't any European companies uh, that rank ahead of the United States in in the economic rankings, and they're offering these these uh, family leave plans. Well, because it's paid for by taxes, those European companies or countries have oh, higher tax rates. You know, upwards at times of fifty, sixty percent. Where do those taxes come from? Where does that money come from? It's taken from people and companies. That money that is taken from people and companies go to non-productive government programs. Taking it out of the econ uh, economy, which otherwise would use it to invest in new ideas. It would use it to invest in research and development. Uh, people would use it to consume products, to buy more products. They'd have that money available. The more money that is sucked out of the economy and given to the government, the less money there is for things like innovation and consumption. It, it's, it's simple economics. We're taking money in, that could be used in a productive capacity and using it in an unproductive capacity. We're taking money for like a family leave where 
it could be a company offering that benefit. You have, in this case then, non-productive money. Money being just given to people instead of being available for use in, in uh, capital investment or consumption. It's that simple. Even money, as much money as our government likes to print, it's still a finite supply of money, just like it's a finite supply of cars or apples or pick something. There's not an unlimited money supply. If it's taken from one thing and given to another, well, you can't use it for that thing you took it from. It's simple economics. And, and that's what these goofballs in government don't understand. That's what this, this this progressive thinking doesn't understand. It's still a finite amount of money. And if you go, oh, by the way, go ahead and print a bunch of money, then you got inflation problems on top of that. And, and that's where we're at now. You look at Europe where they have these uh, these uh, family leave uh, plans. How not like I said, none of them are are ahead of the United States or even China. And I don't know if China has a family leave policy or not, but I know there's no European countries ahead of that economy either. You take money uh, out of the economy for productive means and give it to government to waste. It's less money available for people to buy things like houses and cars. Now, at one stop in my career, I had an employee who worked for me who was from Belgium. Now, I was fascinated by her perspectives and experiences, uh, having now experienced both the American way of life as well as you know, being from Belgium and, and how life is in uh, Europe. One of the biggest difference of course, uh, differences, of course, is speaking with her, was just the level of taxation. In Belgium, taxes are, as you would guess, very high. Are they the highest in Europe? I don't remember at this point. They were high, though. I mean, I, I, I want to say, uh, remembering back to our conversations we had, they're 40, 50 percent uh, tax rates effectively in Belgium on income. Now, while it didn't cost her anything to go to college in Belgium, it was near impossible for anyone to afford a vehicle, and it was pretty much out of the question for anyone but the super wealthy in Belgium to own their own home. And that's what she found fascinating about uh, America is home ownership is the American dream. There's two-thirds of people uh, roughly uh, in America that own their own home. Not so in Belgium. She said that for your average um, Belgian, home ownership's out of the question. The dream in Belgium is for people to own their own car. And as we were discussing that she, uh, one day, the just the differences in kind of what the American dream is and the Belgian dream is, she, she said it to the government just takes such a large chunk of people's income and taxes, they don't have money for things like home or vehicle ownership. They, you know, they have the money to buy what they need, the food, and et cetera, uh, maybe some some of life uh, life's comforts. Uh, but certainly, you know, it's tough to own a vehicle and, and, and even tougher to own a home. And that's just a tax rate. Now, again, gets back to the trade-off. They're taking this product, you know, money out of uh, the economy that could be productive and 
being put towards things like home loans for people or making things affordable, and they're using it to fund uh, college for their uh, for for their citizens and other social programs, right? And that's the choice that was made. But it, again, it's a choice that was made. The the economy, the market will decide, and that's how I I, I think the market should decide what gets offered not a government not a government picking winners and losers not a government saying we're going to take a bunch of money from the citizens and put it to non-productive uses like uh co- you know college or bridges to nowhere things like that if if honestly if there's a bridge that needed to be built somewhere there'd be a market for it if we continue to let our government spend beyond its means like it has been and continues to do and wants to do in the future, and we let it uh, continue to let it spend on social programs, which show no return in, on investment whatsoever, you know, we're not even going to get into that, how much what the return on, in, uh, on investment has been in these tax dollars and these governmental programs, it's atrocious. It would have caused many businesses to go bankrupt long ago. If we continue to let the government spend on social programs, that could be marketplace differentiators if we left it up to the private sector to decide. Then that is where we as a nation will end up. We will end up like Belgium. Ownership will be out of the question for Americans, for your everyday middle-class American. And the American dream will kind of slide into that um, uh, dream of just being able to own a personal vehicle. Now, if we look at the drug price issue, uh, to me, that's an easy solve. Just incentivize competition for treatments of the same ailments. Uh, Honestly, some of the most expensive treatments out there have only, there's only one option. And honestly, you look at the COVID vaccine, the FDA picked a winner. It's been Pfizer. Now tell me that Pfizer isn't going to, you know, once they, they we'll, we'll see what happens, I guess, down the road here. But what we know today, if Pfizer is the only COVID vaccine option when it actually gets produced, we're still uh, administering the one that's been uh, granted under the emergency use authorization. They haven't even started producing the branded one yet. The one that was actually, uh, uh, the one that was actually uh, approved by the FDA. It's, so we've got one approved COVID vaccine. What do you think that's going to mean for the price of that once we get down the road where Pfizer's is the only one that's approved? You have a monopoly. That price, Pfizer's going to be able to charge whatever they want for it. Get more competition. Incentivize competition for treatments of the same ailments. One option means high prices. You get more options out there. We we have to figure out a way to incentivize competition so that there are more options in the marketplace. More options means lower prices. We don't need regulation to bring drug prices down. In all honesty, that's only going to drive them higher. We need the forces of a market economy, a true market economy to drive prices down. More supply will equal less expensive products. That's just how it goes. Once you have more of something, you have more choices, you have to drive the price down to to uh, get someone to purchase it. That It's just, again, it, I, it, 
blows my mind. We have so many experts in the government that don't get this. And once again, you've got government coming in to try and solve for an issue here that basic economic principles will solve in trying to say we want to regulate drug prices. Competition's the answer, not government regulation. We've seen over and over government regulation just increases prices. And the last thing I'm glad that was removed from this atrocious bill is the state and local tax deduction or SALT deduction. And the, this, the inclusion of this thing just proves what hypocrites the Democrats are when it comes to taxation. The SALT deduction allows for people in high tax areas, aka the Democrat tax hellholes like New York, California, New York City, Chicago, whatever, you know where they are. It allows those people that live there to deduct their state and local taxes on their federal returns. Now, I believe it was Trump that got rid of this thing, and for good reason. What, why do why do we need to subsidize people who are living in, who choose to live in these high tax areas? There's no reason that people in fiscally responsible states, cities, whatever, who hold the line on their budgets and the subsequent taxation of their citizens should be subsidizing a deduction for those who choose to live in tax hellholes. If you don't want to pay the high taxes, then vote differently. Now, I'm not talking to those who vote for the candidates who would hold the line on taxes, who would hold the line on spending. I'm not talking to those people. I feel for those people that live in these areas, that live with just this messed up ideology that we're going to vote for higher taxes, but give us our SALT deduction. That, that's just stupid and hypocritical. I'm not talking to those people who vote responsibly. I'm talking to those who continue to vote for candidates who raise taxes through their reckless spending once they get into office, who want to raise your taxes so they can go and pursue their reckless spending agendas. Those are the people I'm talking to and about here. Vote for someone different if you want lower taxes. Take a chance on that candidate who will hold the line on spending and say we're not going to raise taxes. There's no reason those of us who live in states who that, that hold the line on their spending and tax rates should subsidize deductions for those who choose to continue to vote in economic and financial illiterates. This is nothing more than pandering to voters in these tax hells for the next election cycle. It was right to kill the SALT deduction from the spending plan. There's no reason that we need to spend more in a bill so we can funnel it back to, to people who live in high tax areas. Vote differently there or move out. You have choices. One or the other is going to get the attention of the financial illiterates in these areas. Now, the last interesting bit from the Building America's Enemies Back Better bill is the hypocrisy of the Democrats in general. Now, there's more besides the salt deduction that they had in and got taken out. Now, it seems they are interested in reading a bill before voting on it. Now, you have uh, Representative Pramila Jayapal out of Washington uh, talking a little bit about this. This is what she had to say uh, about this um, 
uh, battle going on over Biden's uh, agenda here. She said this, what we said consistently is that we want to see what's actually in the bill. We want to see the legislative text. And then we're, you know, assuming that we're fine with that, we'll vote both bills through at the same time. Oh, so now all of a sudden Democrats want to read about what it is they are trying to pass? They want to know the details before they are asked to vote affirmative on a bill? Now, don't get me wrong. Republicans uh, are just as guilty as, of, bill, uh, of bill illiteracy um, as Democrats. I, you know, I, I have my doubts about how much they actually read these things, too. But the point is here is we have the party of we have to pass the bill before we can know what's in it, saying now all of a sudden they want to read the bill before passing it. Yeah, I agree. Reading it would be a good start. Maybe if they actually read it, it'll make the progressive wing of the Democrats entrench even more in their quest for a drunken spending spree. And maybe that entrenchment lasts all the way to, say, 2022, where this awful inflation-inducing monstrosity can be killed on the House floor when hopefully the Democrats are routed from the majority. Now, I know that's probably a pipe dream, but we can do all do our part. We can all help make this happen by calling our reps and pressuring them to continue to oppose this bill or to get them to oppose this bill. It's only going to be brought to the House floor when it has enough votes to pass. So the more we can encourage our legislators on both sides of the aisle to oppose it in its current form, the longer it will be stalled from receiving the vote. And the longer uh, it's stalled, the better the chances are of it not being passed at all. Now, moving on, I found an interesting story in the Epic Times on how China is not living up to its commitments of fair trade as a member of the WTO. Honestly, is anyone shocked by this? I mean, this isn't really breaking news. We, we all know this. This is what the article says. China has never really observed the rules of the World Trade Organization. It has taken advantage of the World Trade Organization, Clyde Prestowitz, president and founder of the Economic Strategy Institute, told the Chinese edition of the Epic Times. Well, no kidding, Clyde. The WTO is just like every other useless world governing body, toothless and useless. If the WTO had any guts, if its members had any guts, it would give China an ultimatum. Shape up, conform to the rules of the WTO, or you're out. Period. End of story. Now, Prestowitz had uh, this to say about, uh, as an example, and this is in regards to Australia's trade with China. He says this, If you just look at what China has been doing in its trade with Australia, it's actually, sadly, halting Australian imports. Okay, so China's halting Australian imports. What is anybody at the WTO doing about it? The useless WTO is setting up a panel to study this China issue. Oh, wait, another commission that'll do nothing. Amazing. So here's a little bit more from the Epic Times piece on this panel. It says this, on October 26th, the WTO agreed to set up a panel to examine China's steep duties on imported Australian wine. This is the third 
time, third time, Australia has sought WTO action over an agricultural product in less than a year, according to the Australian Broadcasting Company. The third time? If I'm Australia, I'm telling the WTO that either they get off of China's teat and do something, or we are pulling our funding. We are pulling out of the WTO. Australia's plight here just shows how useless of an organization the WTO really is. There comes a time when these countries need to take matters into their own hands. How many times or how many tariffs on China has the Biden administration rolled back from what the Trump administration put in place? None. That should be telling. Now, I know the Brandon administration isn't going to go any further. In fact, they might even start rolling them back eventually. But if China doesn't change their ways, the next administration that comes in should stand in solidarity with the countries that are getting screwed by China's tactics and threaten to pull out of the WTO if they aren't going to perform their assigned function of negotiating trade disputes among the nations and their assigned function of making sure there's fair trade among the nations, to make sure that member nations are abiding by the, the rules and regulations of being, an, uh, of being a WTO member. As usual with these awful world institutions, the U.S. is leading uh, the way as far as being the uh, highest individual country contributor to the budget of this thing. The U.S. provides 11.6% of the WTO's funding, and that was in 2020. Now, that amounts to $24 million. And while each country pays individually, if you took the European Union as a whole, it makes up the largest contributing block, coming in at 33.6% of the funding, or $71 million. Now, pulling either the U.S., funding out or the U uh, or the EU funding out it would hurt it, the if if the European Union block pulled out in mass that would really hurt 71 million dollars that's 33% of the operating budget it, you have to do these things you have to threaten these things to get some action here pulling those funding the funding of either block would hurt and if the U.S. and EU countries banded together and pulled their funding as one, call it one uh, cooperative unit, it would end the WTO. Now you're talking about pulling out 45%, a little over 45% of the funding of the WTO. And it probably wouldn't stop at uh, the EU countries and the United States. There's lots of other countries getting shafted by ch uh, China's policies that are members of the WTO. Imagine if they saw these two uh, large blocks standing up, they start pulling their money. It would put a lot of pressure on the WTO to do something about China. It would put a lot of pressure on the WTO to, to get China in line. All right, last topic for today, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. It is scheduled to begin this week. Jury selection is supposed to start Monday, November 1st. And we need to be ready to be pounded with how this is now somehow all about race, even though all the parties involved are white. 
we need to be ready for the inevitable media painting uh, the uh, the rioters as victims. The dreadful AP is already firing up the race narrative. Now, I have a few articles from uh, the Always Propagandizing Association here. I'll link them if you want to give them the clicks. I also have a Chicago Tribune article written by Stacey St. Clair that is actually a bit of neutral journalism. It's, it's a good article. Give that one the click. I, I give her a, a hat tip for doing actual journalism work there. I thought it was a pretty good article. Um, not slanted in any way, shape, or form. Just gives you the facts. An actual good article, so I'll include that one in there too. Now, there's a few uh, a few themes here leading up to the trial, and I will try and touch on all of them. Also, I'd like to mention that episode five of my podcast, and I covered at some length some of the more intricate legal details that could be in play here, when it, especially when it comes to Wisconsin law and statute. So please go back and give that show a listen as well for some of the other coverage I did in uh, of the case in relation in relation to the charges Rittenhouse is facing. Now, first and foremost, the race narrative is coming to the fore. Aaron Morrison just wrote just a absolutely dreadful article titled "Ahead of Rittenhouse Trial: Race Seen as an Underlying Issue." The propagandists are already laying the foundation to stoke the race narrative here yet again. So what is the race play here? What is going on that that race is an underlying issue of this trial? How are these clowns in the media just trying to make this connection? If you're asking that, you're, it's a valid question. And it's 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 valid considering at the at the facts of this case, the fact of this case is all the parties involved in it are on the light side of the color chart. This is what Aaron Morrison wrote in the opening of his dreadful article. Kyle Rittenhouse, the aspiring police officer who gunned down three people in Kenosha, Wisconsin during a protest against racism and pro and police brutality is white. So though, so were those who were shot. But for many, his trial next week will be watched closely as the latest referendum on race and the American legal system. What the hell is this? He gunned down three people and... So that makes it sound like he was out there looking for people to shoot. He gunned down three people like he's on the streets of Chicago blasting away in the neighborhoods there. Th those are people getting gunned down. Kyle Rittenhouse defended himself. There's video proof of it all over the place. Yet this clown, Aaron Morrison, opens his article saying that Kyle Rittenhouse was who, who gunned down three people in Kenosha during a protest against racism and brutality. Is that what it was? It sure as hell looked to me like they were trying to burn the city down. The last I checked, a protest doesn't burn down cities. It doesn't burn down businesses. It doesn't burn down neighborhoods. Give me a break. It's already starting. Just watch for it and watch for it as this trial goes on. You will see more of this. So how... How is it 
white people who are defending themselves against other white people who are trying to attack them or on video trying to attack them, now somehow a referendum on race and the American legal system. How are we making that tie? How are we saying, uh, uh, how is it that this, this, this is getting perpetuated again to somehow tie it back and, and say that this is a referendum, this somehow is it, it, it is a race issue, that this trial is a race issue. How can this be? Well, lucky for us, Jacob Blake's uncle, Justin Blake, has the answer for us. This is what he had to say. If our country shows that you can shoot Caucasians who support us, then this country can never stand up in any international or global hearing and talk about human rights, the uncle said. He said, if Rittenhouse goes free, White people will be able to ride down every African-American community and just have fun like you're going hunting or something. That is Justin Blake, Jacob Blake's uncle. How can you, how is this even serious? How is this even being printed in something that is supposed to be serious? Well, we know that the AP, like every other legacy media outlet in this country, is garbage and and has ceased to be serious long ago. So, apparently, Justin Blake missed the fact that one of the rioters, rioters Rittenhouse was defending himself against was hurling racial slurs on camera before that. He was hurling racial slurs at people there protecting the businesses. I'm pretty confident that white people aren't just going out in every African-American community Having fun, as Justin Blake puts it. I'm pretty confident in that. It'd be all over the frickin' news every night. Are people really going to buy into this debunked narrative that African Americans are being hunted by white people? It doesn't matter how many times you say it, it ain't true. How can... It, it, the mentality here is astounding. So somehow Rittenhouse going free is going to be the trigger to, to, to give open season or to, to have open season on African-Americans? How do you even draw that conclusion? I'm sorry, that is incredibly stupid that, that, that you can even draw that conclusion. That's not even happening now. It wasn't happening before then. It's somehow going to happen after if if Rittenhouse is acquitted. The 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 guys here that Rittenhouse defended himself against were all white. He's white. How does this have anything to do with the black community? It has nothing to do with black and white relations, and it has everything to do this trial. Everything that this trial is, it has to do with three life losers who were in Kenosha, not to support the Jacob Blake, not to support police brutality, not to support BLM movement. They were simply in Kenosha to cause chaos and destruction. It's that simple. And they attacked a 17-year-old kid who was there defending a business, who was there earlier in the day cleaning up the mess from the night before, who was there uh, on video providing medical attention to someone that had gotten hurt during the riot. 
that is what this is about. This has nothing to do with race relations, yet they want to make it everything to do with race relations to try and open that wound back up. This is ridiculous. This is stupid. This is propaganda. And you, I know my listeners don't believe it, won't believe it. I hope that there's a lot of America that doesn't believe it. It's absolutely stupid. Go look at your facts for yourself. Furthermore, since there will be a big deal and has been a big deal, will continue to be a big deal made about Rittenhouse coming into Kenosha from Antioch, Illinois. He's from out of town. Antioch's 20 miles roughly from Kenosha. There will be much made about his being armed, which, oh, by the way, the rifle he had was not brought across state lines. It was his legal rifle. He kept it at a friend's house. Did not cross state lines at all. That's been debunked. I wouldn't put it past our garbage media to try and bring that up again. I want to also have a little reminder here about just the kind of individuals that attacked Kyle Rittenhouse that were there supposedly uh, in solidarity with the BLM movement and supposedly there protesting police brutality. Now, Joseph Rosenbaum, he's our, we know, I won't rehash too much of, of, of that. We know he was... Uh, had his issues with uh, um, a sexual um, assault conviction uh, and, and other legal troubles. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, he was there witness setting fires. I believe it was a fire that he set that was put out by a good Samaritan that kind of triggered uh, his rage at Kyle Rittenhouse because I, remembering back from the story, Kyle Rittenhouse had uh, similar looking clothing to uh, the individual that had put out that had put out the uh, fire that Rosenbaum had just started in some barrel and it was sh- or a dumpster or whatever it was and shoved it towards a gas station. Rosenbaum's last known home address was Waco, Texas. Rosenbaum chased Rittenhouse through a car lot. Rosenbaum is captured on video hurling racial slurs earlier in the evening at other armed men, other people there to protect their town, their city, their uh, community's businesses. Last I checked, Texas isn't anywhere near Wisconsin or even Illinois for that matter. But there will be no mention of why Rosenbaum was in Kenosha, even though his home address was Texas. No mention of that. Yeah, so... So they make a big deal out of Rittenhouse being uh, not being he, coming in from out of state, but uh, you know Rosenbaum will give him a pass. That that's what the media is going to do. They, there's not any mention of that. There won't be. And then you have Anthony Huber, who was filmed beating Rittenhouse with a skateboard. I believe he's had his own legal troubles as well. Now Huber was from Silver Lake, Wisconsin, which is about 20 miles west of Kenosha. Uh, once again. We have another rioter who was in town, uh, and if it wasn't even a town that's anywhere close to Kenosha. I mean, 20 minutes, that's, I've, I've lived out in that, that way and driven out that way. That, that's a good ride. It's probably a minimum 30-minute ride into to Kenosha where this all took place. So here again, someone that was supposedly uh, supporting the cause in from out of town. And then last is Gage Grosskreutz, who is from West Allis, Wisconsin. That's a full 40 miles 
from Kenosha, 40 miles from Kenosha. And they want to make a big deal of Rittenhouse coming from Antioch, which is literally just over the border uh, in terms of Wisconsin and Illinois. Yes, it is 20 miles because it's west of Kenosha. But you got someone coming 40 miles. And to boot, Grosskreutz was armed with a pistol and is seen in footage holding it. I believe he was even filmed pointed at, pointing it at, at Rittenhouse. Oh, and don't forget, uh, Gage Grosskreutz here uh, also expressed remorse that he didn't use his pistol to shoot Rittenhouse in a conversation with a friend that said friend posted on social media after the fact, after that he had been in the hospital and had his arm all wrapped up from uh, when he, he was shot by Rittenhouse. These three rioters weren't in Kenosha for a festival or some block party or visiting anyone. They were there to cause chaos. You don't just come in from that far out of town and during riots and unrest in a city without that purpose. They came to Kenosha purposefully. They came to cause chaos and destruction. When Rittenhouse was forced to defend himself, it was already the third night of unrest in Kenosha. These three individuals knew what was going on when they showed up in Kenosha. They already knew what the situation was going to be. They knew what they were getting into when they rolled into Kenosha and what was going to go on that night. They came in to Kenosha to cause more destruction and violence and chaos. Plain and simple. If, you, if that wasn't your intent, you don't show up, period. And to paint this as anything having to do with race is dishonest and flat out wrong. To paint this uh, and these three as victims is flat out wrong. To paint these three rioters as allies of the African-American community is a lie. Just because they were in Kenosha during the unrest triggered by perceived police brutality does not make them supporters of the cause. To paint them as such is dishonest. Until you show me that they were supporters of the cause well before that night in Kenosha, then maybe there's a conversation to be had that they did actually support the BLM cause. To support the African-American community. Until then, until that is shown, it's dishonest to paint them as anything but individuals who rolled into Kenosha for nefarious reasons. Now, there's a bit of good news here within the case. And it's this. The judge in the Rittenhouse case will not allow the prosecution to refer to the three, to refer to Rosenbaum, uh, Huber, and Grosskreutz as victims. Now, the defense cannot refer to them as rioters, looters, or arsonists, at least in their open and opening statements. But if the defense can establish proof throughout the trial supporting the use of those terms as descriptors of Rosenbaum, Huber, and Grosskreutz, then the defense may use those terms in their closing arguments. The prosecution in this case has continually tried to fluff the narrative. And the judge in this case, uh, I think, is, has been very fair. He has not only denied the prosecution's ability to refer to the three rioters as victims, he has also denied the prosecution's motion 
to keep Rosenbaum's lawless behavior that night from being used as part of the evidence uh, for Rittenhouse's defense. I believe the DA in Kenosha has come to the realization that they have way overcharged Kyle Rittenhouse here. So now they're and have been grasping at straws to try and save face, to try and tip the scales in their favor uh, with, with how this trial is going to proceed. And on top of that, on top of that, because there's so much vid, uh, video evidence here, many legal experts believe that this is uh, a fairly strong case of self-defense on the part of Kyle Rittenhouse. Remember, Rittenhouse was seen running away from his assailants. He was running away from Rosenbaum through the car lot before he turned back and shot. He was running away from Huber before he tripped and fell, and Huber beat him with his skateboard. He was staring down the barrel of Grosskreutz's pistol as he was on the ground after he had shot Huber. So he was in a position on the ground once Grosskreutz a, 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 a approached him, uh, a, vulnerable, a vulnerable position there. The fact that Rittenhouse was witnessed trying to remove himself from the situation is important when it comes to the self-defense claim. Now, this is an excerpt from an article outlining the analysis from the legal experts that have weighed in on the case ahead of time here. I'll post the link. It's a, it's it's an AP article, but it's, you know, on the scale of less bad AP articles, I guess. Uh, but it says this, Wisconsin law doesn't require someone whose life is in danger to flee before shooting. So right there, it, <laughs> Uh, it's almost like it's saying it's a, a stand your ground. We're not a stand your ground state, but our law doesn't require someone whose life is in danger to flee before shooting. I think even that narrative might have been out there. It's not a requirement. If your life's in danger, um, you certainly have the right to defend yourself. You don't have to start running before you start defending yourself. But there, here's the second part to this, and it's also important when evaluating uh, this case in the self-defense claim. It says this, but jurors can consider whether someone tried to move away from danger as they assess the reasonableness of a self-defense claim. So the jury can take a look and say, okay, he's claiming self-defense. Do we have a reasonable case of uh, a reasonable claim of self-defense here? And part of that reasonable claim is, is that uh, that person claiming that they acted in self-defense, were they reasonably trying to move, the, or were they trying to move away from danger uh, before they went into their self-defense mode? And, it, and it's important that this uh, distinction is made and that this evaluation is done because, and it's the last piece of this um, uh, uh, section here, uh, of the of the uh, article, self defense can't be invoked by someone if they were an aggressor. So if Rittenhouse was the one going in blasting away, like um, is claimed in the the first piece I referred to, and and how they're trying to make this um, a, a race case. If if Rittenhouse were acting as the aggressor, if he were going up just blasting away at people, then you can't, and then they chase them, then you can't claim. Uh, self-defense because he was the aggressor there. But 
Rittenhouse clearly wasn't an aggressor. He was filmed attempting to move himself away from the situation. He was filmed trying to surrender to police after he had shot those three uh, individuals. Rittenhouse's self-defense claim is strong here. And the judge in the case, I feel, is attempting to make it as fair of a trial as possible. And I really hope that the jury in this case is sequestered so they aren't polluted by the narratives that will be circulating during this trial. I firmly believe that in looking at the charges brought forth by the Kenosha DA, they are overcharging Rittenhouse, especially the first-degree homicide charges that that were were brought way back uh, when uh, Rittenhouse was originally arrested and charges brought forth. Those are way over and above what we have here. I think the DA in Kenosha realize this and they realize they're too late on here. And that's why they're trying to fluff this up and, and pull in some victim cards and some other things here. I think they realize this. I think they realize they overcharge here because with the first degree homicide charge, they have to prove the intent that Rittenhouse was in Kenosha looking to kill that night. They don't have it here. All the video evidence points to the fact that he was trying to remove himself from the, the, uh, the situation. The video evidence points to Rittenhouse was there cleaning up earlier in the day. He was there helping a rioter when they were injured. Now, is that someone that is there that, that where a first degree homicide charge would stick? They, they don't have, they don't have intent here. I think the prosecution knows they screwed up on these charges. And it's it's been evident in some of the pretrial motions they filed, some of the ones I've gone over here. In the end, we'll see how this trial plays out. The self-defense claim is strong. I, I firmly believe that. And I firmly believe that the video evidence is clear in how Rittenhouse acted that evening. And it is in that mode of self-defense. He did everything he could to avoid having to use his rifle. He did everything he could to avoid shooting. Ultimately, though, it's going to be up to the jury and how they perceive the evidence to rule in the same way. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for listening. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with the knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living with Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor and Gab. My handle on both is at livingwithliberty. You can also go to the contact page of my website and email me or follow the links there to my social media pages. Liberty isn't a given. 
we must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.